VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, November the 4th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly. Ben Murphy sitting in the producer's chair for now. So if you're on the go and up and at him and looking to get on the program today, you'll be speaking with Ben Murphy. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, one 590 VOCM, which is 8626. So we often hear references to the fighting Newfoundlander. How about the sparring and kata performing Newfoundlander? Big shout out to seven young athletes from Alex Foley's Academy of Martial Arts. That's out in the ghouls. Last month, they were part of Team Canada at the World Karate Championships in Killarney, Ireland. Came home with 20 medals and five titles. So congratulations to the members of Team Canada out of the dojo run by Alex Foley, and I don't think I've ever given squash a shout-out here on the program, but we're going to do it this morning. So the squash team representing the province for the 2023 uh, Canada Games is going to be the girls' team, Sophie Tulk, uh, Megan Bourgeois, Laura Stroud, Alexa Fleming, and on the boys' team, Joel Stroud, Ben Smith, Carter Lake, and Jonah Dupasquier. I think that's how you pronounce it. Sorry, Jonah. Head coach, Todd McDonald, and the team manager, Lisa Bragg. Shout-out for squash. So we've heard the announcement there's going to be a new track and field facility built for the 2025 Canada Summer Games, which we're hosting here in St. John's and area. Okay. I'm not sure where it's going to be. There's even some rumbles that there's going to be a new turf soccer field built at Memorial University. Not sure where that would be built either. But it's a cost-shared issue between the city, the province, and the federal government. You know, just imagine, we had to take the 2025 Games if we were ever going to hold them again. And we were kind of coming up short on some of the facilities, track and field being one. And still, I'm not quite understanding exactly how we're going to address the shortcomings at the Aquarina for hosting national events. Apparently, there's a plan in place, but we don't know what it is as of yet. Here's an interesting one. If you're a baseball fan and you're watching the series and the Astros up now 3-2 in the World Series, there's a legendary name that we never got to saw play on this side of the ocean, but... Sadaharo O. Do you know who that has been? Sadaharo O. He made his first appearance on uh, April 11th of 1959 for the Yomamori Giants. Last appearance October 12th, 1980 for the same team. He announced formally his retirement today in baseball history in 1980. He's the all-time world home run record. He hit 868 home runs during his professional career. All, of course, played in Japan. And people say, well, it's it's not the caliber. They don't have the pitching. We know the Japanese have produced a ton of top-quality baseball players. So he was also a friend of Hank Aaron. So in uh, 1964, O hit 55 home runs, a single-season record that he held for 37 years. Then he became friends with Hank Aaron. They squared off in a home run derby before an exhibition game in Japan on the 2nd of November 1974. Aaron had just eclipsed Babe Ruth's home run record, and Aaron went down to hit win that home run derby 10 dingers to 9. Sadaharu Wo. That's the name that I'm familiar with. I don't know if you are, but there you go. All right, there are, I have never received more emails on one topic beyond when are the $500 checks coming out. And I heard Brian Medore mention they get a lot of calls in the newsroom as well. And this is part of the $194 million inflation package that the province announced. Still controversial in many corners. You know, it's all in an effort to focus in on whoever is actually part of the middle class. Okay. So if you make up to $100,000, you get a $500 check. Up to one twenty-five, dollars you get a $250 check. 
They're going to be out mid-month. So sometime next week, it looks like they are going to flow. So people have been asking me all the time about those checks. And so that's the most updated information we have available for you. And talking about the struggles people are having, and you don't know if this is based in desperation or what the motivation necessarily might be, but it really is heart-wrenching to read stories like this. For the second time this year, people have broken into the food bank that operates out of the Corpus Christi Church. So they stole a, meat, a freezer worth of meat, a case of margarine, snow tires, and a bunch of other items that were stolen. Again, whether or not they were hungry or whether or not they're just part of the criminal element looking to make a buck on a resale of anything that they stole, I don't know. That food bank has been in operation at Corpus Christi for over 40 years. But here's some of the other trickle-down or ripple effects of the fact that, yes, compensation needed to be paid to the victims at Mount Cashel. And so, because the Episcopal Corporation was broke, selling the churches. So now, if the food bank and their future remains uncertain, so when the deal is finalized with whoever bought Corpus Christi, they may indeed have to close up shop at that particular food bank. And you know, with the salt in the wound or the second break into the air, it's really, really really quite something. So they, they say they can't pay rent. It would be absolutely impossible. So if they don't find a free rental space, whether it be in Corpus Christi or anywhere else, that food bank that has been helping Newfoundlanders and Labradorians for 40 years may go by the wayside. But just imagine breaking into a food bank. Man. All right, and for people trying to save a few dollars, maybe for some early Christmas shopping, tomorrow's tax-free Saturday, downtown St. John's. Some 70 shops and services will be participating in tax-free Saturday. It's a big day for them. And as you hear Galen Gulliver and many other talk about the importance of spending your money locally with the locally owned and operated businesses, the numbers are somewhere in the, this line, that 90% of the money that comes in stays right here in the local economy. Now, that's not to say that people cannot spend their money everywhere else. It's where, where, wherever else is your money. You do what you want. But tax-free is a nice opportunity to get a break on some new shopping initiatives, maybe in preparation for Christmas. All right, we were told that the province is working on a variety of different measures to recruit and retain healthcare professionals. Whether it be some of the healthcare professionals that came in from the Warsaw desk in Poland, folks from Ukraine, and now the province has announced that they're going to set up a recruitment office in India, in the city of Bengaluru. That city has about 14 million people. Interestingly, uh, there's a particular area in that city, the state called Karnataka, Karnataka I something like that. Anyway, they've got over 100 nursing schools. They do very much have a similar approach to training for nurses. So... Premier Fury and others say one surefire way to deal with the work-life balance that nurses are struggling with is to provide more nurses. There are 600 vacant jobs for registered nurses here in the province. We know what the outcome has been. Not only the burnout and the stress and the potential for workplace injury or violence, they've got some 40% of their members that are facing 24-hour shifts. Emergency rooms are blocked. Hospital and care centers have been uh, diverted in many cases. Some doors have been closed, like for instance out of Whitburn for some 19 weeks. Okay, so they've got to streamline some approach to licensing here when the healthcare professionals arrive. But here's a story that I don't know if we work on this one enough. This is talking about dealing with the local hurdles in conjunction with recruiting across the country or around the world. So in Ireland or India or Ukraine or wherever the case may be. This particular lady 
she took some time away from her profession as a registered nurse to have a family. And now she's ready to go back. And to requalify, it's taken the devil of a long time. So if we do indeed know we had trained, accredited, licensed registered nurses here that in this case start practicing to have a family, now to get back in the fold, it's taken forever and a day, and she's quickly souring on whether or not she wants to go back into the profession. So yes, we can make sure that we recruit, and yes, we have to ensure that they have the standard of training required to practice in this province, regardless if it's a doctor or a registered nurse or an LPN or a nurse practitioner, whatever the case may be. But let's attend to the local hurdles as well, especially things as fundamental as requalifying. Obviously, this person was qualified enough five years ago, so how and why can it be a nuisance to get back into the fold? When we're stressed out, we have 600 vacant jobs representing registered nurses here in the province. But anyway, you want to tackle it? Let's go. I am concerned with the story regarding the fewer registrations at Memorial University. The university registrations are down some 19%. The numbers that came directly from the university, 1,708 new full-time undergraduate students registered at Mount St. John's campus this fall. That's a decline of 404, or 19.1%. 50 new graduate students, a drop of 17.8% at the Cornerbrook Grenfell campus. We know some of this absolutely could indeed be part of the spike in tuition fees. Absolutely. I don't know what other contributing factors may be in place. But this is a long-term concern. You know, the voices coming from Monsu and other places talking about the fact that there's going to be a potential loss of access and affordability, and consequently, what does that mean for our long-term security and viability? You know, which requires an educated public. Now, international students, there's a thousand more than there were pre-pandemic. So obviously the spike in tuition hasn't scared off international students with any great numbers. Increase of a thousand will point to that case in point. So where do we go with this? It's a matter of priority, I suppose. Like we just spoke to the $194 million inflation package, one-time check. No real discussion about long-term solutions for people who are already struggling, and very likely, if there's a recession looming, struggling into the future. So is it a matter simply of priorities? The government, over the course of five years, is going to phase out about a $70 million grant that was flowing to Memorial University, allowing for the tuition freeze to continue, which it did for some 22 years. But anyway, that's a big topic in my mind. Anyway, you want to talk about it? Let's go. We've been keeping an eye, of course, on most everything we can, but let's talk a little industry news. There was disappointment in the last go-around for the CNLOPB land sale. So that's, of course, for oil and gas companies to put money down for exploration, to spend money on exploration in one parcel or another. This year's outcomes and results, a little bit more positive if you're, if you're an oil and gas watcher. A couple of really interesting parts of this. So ExxonMobil, which, of course, has been operating here for some 25 years, really the backbone of the industry, they've got a partner called OPI Energy Canada. That's a subsidiary of Qatar Energy. They're going to spend $181.6 million in exploration over the next six years out in the Orphan Basin at a prospect known as Heart's Content. So that's encouraging. Again, some people will be completely opposed to any new, new oil production. That's part of the conversation as well, if you'd like to bring it forward. But here's where this is really interesting. Qatar Energy is extremely bullish on natural gas. 
of which we have never developed here. So there's going to be the potential for the first ever natural gas production facility, whether it be liquefied offshore or whatever the case may be, but they're big on gas. And if you read between the lines, even comments coming from Jimmy Keating over at Oilco, he makes distinct reference to the fact that this is the possibility for natural gas now. The country does indeed sit on a wealth of natural gas. And if we're talking about transition fuels away from oil as we know it to utilize gas and, of course, the conversation regarding green hydrogen or what have you, but that's one of the parcels that has indeed been sold. There was five bids totaling $238 million. Ten parcels were available uh, down in the southeastern Newfoundland region that were not bid upon. So five bids out of the 38 that were out there. Three successful bids made by the partners Econorm BP Canada. What's interesting there is they bought some parcels immediately surrounding their already well understood Beta Nord project. They say it might be another two years before the business sanction and maybe first oil by the end of the decade, but looks like Equinor. You know, if you're going to buy parcels around your well-known established uh, oil field out of Beta Nord, maybe that's an indication they're here for the long term. But Exxon and Cotter Energy, that might be the first gas play we see. And speaking of the green hydrogen, look, it's a lot of unknowns surrounding it, even though we've been talking a lot about the potential on the Port of Port Peninsula and the World Energy GH2 and the play out of the Port of Argentia. And yes, there's some 32 bids for land parcels that have been put on the minister's desk inside the world of green hydrogen. The province says, when asked directly whether or not there's going to be provincial money uh, afforded to, whether it be John Risley's organization or others, the province has said no. But in yesterday's fall fiscal update from uh, Minister Freeland, there is indeed going to be a tax credit for green investors, so targeted job measures. There's going to be upwards of a refundable tax credit equal to 30% of the capital cost of investment. Now, not every bit of investment is eligible for this tax break, but you know full well that this is absolutely going to be utilized by the green energy or the green hydrogen crew. So here's what it says. The tax credit is reserved for companies that are investing in green electricity generation systems, stationary electricity storage systems that don't use fossil fuels, low carbon heat equipment, and zero emission vehicles. So pretty widespread, and it's hard to understand exactly what's going to be eligible, but that tax credit will be Music to the ears of the folks, whether it be World Energy, GH2, or others. So that's a big piece of the story yesterday. And, of course, yesterday was indeed the fall fiscal update coming from the Deputy Prime Minister, the Minister of Finance, Christopher Freeland, who will be on this program in about 15 minutes or so. The big highlight numbers here. So there's a $36.4 billion deficit. That's down from $52 billion, which was the announcement coming in April when the budget was read. Of course, they've had some good news on the, uh, on the revenue side. More royalties coming from oil and gas projects, an uptick in corporate and personal taxes. But because of that, they are indeed planning more spending, some $30.6 billion in new spending over the course of the next six years. We'll get into some of the details of where that spending lies, targeting those who, quote-unquote, have been hurt the most by the pandemic. But when you look down the road, and they say that the downside scenario, uh, it's tilted towards the downside, the potential for recession, the thousands of jobs that could be in jeopardy. You know, we're told that the government thinks they should keep their powder dry. How long can the government afford to keep their powder dry, though? Because the recession is looking more and more likely, not because I say so, but the consensus amongst economists is pretty clear. So at what point do we not keep our powder dry and prep fiscal policy 
to match monetary policy to do the very best we can to weather an inflationary storm, a recession-filled and fueled storm. So if you have suggestions for what you'd like to hear posed in the form of a question to Minister Freeland when she joins us here shortly, we're happy to do it. All right, let's get to the break so we can be on time. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. My favorite is when you pick up the phone and get in the queue and on the air to talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. And welcome back to this program. Let's begin this morning with a note of positivity. Hey, bring it on. Line number four. Maggie, you're on the air. Maggie, line four. Maggie, are you there on line number four? Hello. Hello. I'm here. Good. Welcome to the show. Can you hear me? I can now. Thanks for this. What's on your mind? Uh, I, as I was saying to Ben there just not long ago, like uh, I listen to VOCM religiously. I start my morning with Ben and Jerry Lynn. And, of course, the news. And as I was saying to Ben, listen to, like, all the negativity about, you know, food insecurity, all kinds of challenges. And I uh, struggle with uh, clinical depression and anxiety. And I was listening to VOCM, like I said, religiously every morning. And I heard Kelly Loder's song, uh, Fearless. Yeah. Which she sang on the concert when they had the We Stand on Garda game, which was a beautiful show. And I just thought to myself, because I was feeling kind of blah when I got up this morning at 5 o'clock, and I'm like, you know, every sometimes every hour is a struggle. But when I heard that song, it's more specifically the lines in it that says, I'm a, a, a warrior, I'm a champion, nothing is going to beat me down, it really changed me from feeling really low to feeling really upbeat to take on my day. And I just want to say to listeners out there, if you're starting off your day and you don't feel so good, it is worth listening to that song. It is beautiful, uplifting. Yeah, I'll jump into raging seas and pull you out so you can breathe. Tell me what it is you need. I, I love that song. I have to it say. amazing. Kelly Loader is fabulous. And I've got a funny feeling that she's going to be a bigger star than she is today in short order. I mean, even on Canada's Got Talent, she was fabulous. and I, Or, pardon me, Kelly was fabulous. And yeah. I have the record uh, Benefit of the Doubt, and I listen to it uh, every now and then. So I think Kelly Loader has a big, big future ahead. And uh, rightfully so. What a performer, what a singer, and obviously a terrific songwriter. Amazing. And I like, I just feel like I said to Ben, I just feel so uplifted right now. I just, amazing. And I just hope that like listeners out there that who, I mean, everybody's struggling. There's so many challenges, but listening to that song can certainly give you a boost, even if it's temporary, even if it's just for today. It is worth listening to. We could all use a little bump of positivity. And just very quickly, as kind of a side in the conversation, you know, we have so many people get up on arms if someone asks to be referred to as with certain pronouns. And Kelly uses gender neutral pronouns. So th- I'll just put that out there. And I did say she once, but Kelly has a big future. And I'm really glad that you called with that suggestion. That's a great song. And pick up the record, Benefit of the Doubt. I think you'll be happy with that as well. Almost definitely. Good to have you on, Maggie. Thanks for this. Thank you, too, Patty, and uh, have a great day. You, too. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Because uh, it's not that hard if someone you know, wants uh, specific gender-neutral pronouns. No, it's not that big a deal to try to incorporate it into your conversation. Anyway, let's go to line number two. Merv, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Thank you for putting me on. No problem. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to come on this morning to uh, talk about the issue, of course, of fishing vessel safety. 
and search and rescue and has a follow-up to, um, you know, the speech that, uh, keynote speech that that Jeanette Russell uh, gave to the Fish Harvesters Association uh, earlier this week. And also on your uh, program yesterday morning, I listened to her. Um, You know, she was uh, very, very passionate, uh, you know, about, uh, for obvious reasons, about the you know, the issue of, of search and rescue. You know, about, about three weeks ago, in preparation for the uh, for her talk and the work that she was doing, she invited me to, to collaborate with her to, uh, you know, to put together uh, some work and some background and so on. Uh, quite frankly, I, I don't believe she really needed anybody's uh, anybody's uh, uh, work or advice uh, because she has such a such a grasp on the on the situation uh patty no question about that so uh, i i have that i have to hand it to her and 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 her ability to to convey the message not only put it together but to convey it is uh, is extraordinary that's for sure but um, i really uh, wanted to um, I really wanted to to focus on her thoughts uh, about all the recommendations, but her thoughts about the call for an inquiry. As you know, uh, myself, along with uh, CNL, had put out a call and wrote a letter to the Prime Minister calling for a search and rescue inquiry. And, uh, you know, and I think Jeanette, uh, you know, in conversation with her, without saying too much about that, uh, had agreed as we started to discuss and really, you know, dive deep into the issues that's uh, created the situation in the fishing industry, realized that there there were complexities and that there were a lot of stakeholder involvement, uh, not just the fish harvesters themselves, but uh, as you can appreciate too, Patty, the uh, DFO and Transport Canada, Transport Safety Board, and uh, and you name it. Uh, it's uh, there there's so many and it's so so complex. And uh, and to have full transparency and accountability on what's needed, uh, you know, we we that was certainly a part of the rationalization for that call for an inquiry. We did receive a reply, by the way. The the PMO had sent uh, our letter to Transport Canada. who replied with essentially the words that, uh, among other things, that uh, we are doing enough. Thank you very much for Labrador on search and rescue and fishing vessel safety in general, and that we see uh, we, we have no plans for an inquiry and we see no need for it. Sounds fairly um, paternalistic to me and very, very familiar. So not at all uh, impressed with that, but uh, we're still waiting for a reply from the from the, the PMO, uh, which we feel that we're entitled to do it. But I guess the other big thing, too, be, before I, I stop to catch my breath here, is that, look, it's going to take a, a, a team effort, a collective effort. And Jeanette was very clear in her message on that, too, that, uh, that look, this is not about one individual, one person, one organization. This is about a collective effort um, involving, yes, CNL, myself as an advocate and others, as advocates um, and Jeanette and and many many others and look we I, I want to I mean she gave this speech in the face of an organization that purports to to represent all of the needs of fish harvesters and that's the FFAW and the FFAW have not yet come on board to support or to make any effort to say we need this inquiry I could also add M&L to that too by the way I listened yesterday on your program I always listen to your program wherever I can and uh, you know Craig Pollitt was on there he's the director of M&L and uh, talked about how they've uh, now 
reached out to to other venues, to other organizations, to other topics to be inclusive, uh, but uh, they have not taken on this very serious uh, situation. In fact, the entire face tree was ignored, but I'll leave that to, to Gus Etchegar to talk about. But this one in particular, we could use your help, M&L, and uh, we want to take this over the top to, you know, to, to this is affecting rural parts of the province primarily, and uh, and our fish harvesters and the people that uh, follows under the constituency of, of M&L and others. So so these are, I, I think that's my message mainly this morning, um, Patty, in, 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 the, in addition to supporting Jeanette in their endeavor there, you know? Fair enough, and to say that they're doing enough in Labrador is disingenuous at best. You know, I know we are working towards more and more ground search and rescue crews there, but even Defence Minister Anita Anand says that five-wing goose bay, and the, the biggest word and the, with only two letters is if. So the Canadian Armed Forces can back up designated search and rescue if they're available. That's a pretty big if to be thrown around. So yeah. Miss Russell wants it to be a primary uh, search and rescue unit, which makes all the sense in the world. Labrador has uh, twice the coastline uh, that the island does. There's 11 search and rescue assets all on the, on the island, none in Labrador, uh, including four fast what, fast rescue crafts. Yeah. So to say they're doing enough is purposefully and willfully disingenuous and it's simply not good enough. I've talked about it many times. I'm going to continue to do so. And I appreciate you uh, picking up where Jeanette left off yesterday. She's a force. Yeah, no, no question about it. It's not going to stop there, that's for sure. I'm, I'm also engaged uh, professionally with uh, Nuna Tulvit in, in their endeavor. So I'm glad to be able to take my experience and, and my knowledge and, and, and help in that effort. So hopefully we'll get it over the top. But look, uh, you know, got to reiterate the collective effort and the need for everybody to come on side with this. Uh, Patty, we've talked about it, you've talked about it, and, and you've illustrated very well uh, many times uh, the shortcomings that's there. Uh, so so now, you know, now that we understand the details and the issues and so on, uh, let's get out and do the hustle that's uh, that's needed to get this over the top. I look at the ground search and rescue effort uh, and study that was done last year. It, it was inclusive in, in terms of what could happen under provincial jurisdiction. Uh, you know, the federal uh, portion of search and rescue had to come to the table they say they came voluntarily, but actually they came kicking and screaming. And uh, when you consider that 85% of search and rescue in this province, both at sea and on land, really has uh, federal jurisdiction, federal implications, it's too much to leave them out of the equation. And you know, the idea that uh, the idea that that a, a study and inquiry uh, could be judicious in its approach, uh, harm's length, if you will, and that it could establish. Uh, after uh, a full investigative uh, arrangement of uh, transparency and accountability, uh, they can establish uh, a really good set of recommendations that everybody, including government, right up to the PMO, can use to, to reinforce what is what is needed, what we must have to protect our citizens here in the province. Appreciate the time, Murph. Thank you. Oh, kitty. Thank, Thank you very much. All right. Bye-bye. 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 All right. Let's go and take a break. When we come back, the Deputy Prime Minister of Canada, the Minister of Finance, Christian Freeland, is in the queue, and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. We Days on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the program. Joining us on line number four is the Liberal Member of Parliament for University Rosedale. She's a Minister of Finance and the Deputy Prime Minister. That's Christopher Freeland. Good morning, Minister Freeland. You're on the air. 
Good morning, Patty. Good to be with you. Happy to have you back on the show. So let's get right to it. Uh, yesterday in your announcement, we're talking about, the, here's the big headline numbers, $36.4 billion deficit down from $52 billion. Of course, good, good news on the revenue side, oil and gas, corporate and individual taxes up, but $30 billion in new spending over the next six years. You talk about keeping our powder dry and the downside scenario tilted towards. When is it time to not keep our powder dry and, and pardon me, prepare for what looks like a looming recession? Well, I think we are preparing, and the way we're preparing is by keeping our powder dry, by charting a fiscally responsible course. You know, what I did yesterday, what I did in the budget in April, is, you know, take what I think of as kind of a sensible Canadian path, and that is find a balance between being compassionate, supporting the Canadians who need it, but also being responsible and planning ahead. And you know, the example of compassion and the really good news that I had yesterday that I want to share again with your listeners this morning is, as you know, we're doubling the GST credit, and those checks are arriving in people's bank accounts and in people's mailboxes today, Patty. And, you know, for a family, that's nearly 500 bucks. Is that going to make up for all of the extra costs people are facing? No, for sure it won't. But for a family that's struggling, $500 that they'll get today, that's going to make a big, big difference. And I was really, really glad to be able to tell people yesterday, check out your bank account, open the letters you're getting, because the money is there now. There and that's new- 11 million Canadian households. It's a lot of people, a lot of people in Newfoundland and Labrador, a lot of people who need it across the country. You're focusing on people who have been hurt the most by the pandemic. When is it time to also look in-house, to look inward? Because we talk about job creation and GDP growth, but since February 2020 to July of this year, 86.7 of all the new jobs created in this country are in the public sector. Four departments in particular dominate. More people working for the federal government than ever before. Uh, uh, The payroll is about $60 billion. Can we look inward and see some controls? Because we talk about people who hurt the worst. That's not people working for the federal government. So is it time to tighten up in-house? You know, that is a great question. I just want to start with jobs and by saying I totally agree that focusing on jobs is the most important thing. And for me... The most important number, there were a lot of numbers in what I said yesterday, but the most important number was that there are 400,000 more jobs in Canada today than before COVID hit. That's a really big deal. That is 400,000 people earning a really good living. And for me, that is the single best protection for Canada and Canadian families against the global economic slowdown. Now, I do want to answer your specific question, Patty, and say, look, I agree with you. Um, I think that the federal government needs to be as careful with the money we spend, which doesn't belong to us, it belongs to Canadians, as every single Canadian is with their own money. And, you know, I am the finance minister and the deputy prime minister, but I'm also a wife and a mother. And I 
like getting my credit card bills and my bank statements on paper. And once a month, I sit at my kitchen table and I go through them. I did it just last weekend. And if I see a charge that doesn't make sense, I ask all my kids and my husband, what was that? Do we need to do it? I actually canceled our Disney Plus on Sunday because my kids are older and they're not watching it. Thirteen ninety nine a month, we're going to be saving. And I know that every single mother in the country does that. And I do think it's important for the federal government to be just as careful. So I want to say to your listeners, I am taking exactly that same approach. It doesn't mean that we're not going to be there when we are needed. So, for example, an unexpected and pretty significant amount of money you'll see in our statement yesterday is $1.3 billion for Hurricane Fiona recovery and rebuilding. That's a lot of money, but it's necessary and it's the right thing to do. But what we also said, what we said in April is the federal government is going to find $9 billion of savings in federal government spending. $3 billion of that was the job of the Department of Finance. And yesterday I said I've found $3.8 billion because I think you asked a very good question. And, you know, I just want to say to your listeners, I'm going to kind of try to take the approach that a wife and a mother would take with the household budget. Spend money when the family needs it. If the kids need new shoes, buy them new shoes, but also be careful and be sure no one is wasting anything. Also, I really do believe in using up leftovers. Nobody begrudges... A personal household comment, Patty. Fair ball. Uh, nobody begrudges uh, supports afforded to those who have been impacted the most. Low-income earners, seniors, whatever the case may be, but there's a stark contrast between campaign messaging and supports that have come from the federal government. During the campaign, it was the middle class this and the middle class that. The middle class has not seen any of these types of supports. Middle class wages are not keeping up with consumer price index. Middle class wages are not keeping up with the cost of living and or inflationary pressures. Is there a way to target whatever the middle class actually means? I'm not even exactly sure who falls into that, but they've been glaringly left out of additional supports. Patty, I have to say, I don't really agree with that. Um, this GST uh, credit, it is going, it is targeted. It's going to the people who need it the most. Um, but it's going to 11 million Canadian households. That's a lot of people. I think a lot of people, a lot of those people do consider themselves to be middle class, but they're struggling to stay middle class, and it's really appropriate to give them support. I'd also point to what we did on student loans and apprentice loans. Yesterday, we announced that the federal interest is going to be removed forever on those loans. That's going to help all Canadian young people. And, you know, certainly both the statistics and when I just talk to people on the street, what I hear and what I see is that young people are particularly challenged by the economy today. So I was glad to deliver them some support. 
support too. Because student loans should never be a revenue generator for the province and or the federal government. I'd like to ask another couple. I agree. Another a couple of specific questions uh, to this province. We had a bilateral agreement negotiated by then Premier Ball with the federal government about the carbon tax and home heating fuels to be exempt. That may change here, given the the new approach to carbon tax increase triple over the course of eight years. There are a lot of worried uh, seniors, in particular in this province, about carbon tax on their home heating fuel. Can you commit to having that exemption continue for the future? Uh, I'm not going to be making any announcements about that today. That's going to be for the Minister of the Environment. But I do want to say, as someone who lives in Ontario, a province where the federal backstop on the price on pollution does apply, it's important to remember, especially for people like seniors, um, who are worried about affordability, but also, frankly, you know, who are lower income, that the price on pollution, it actually returns money to people's pockets. This is not a revenue generator. Eight out of 10 households where that price on pollution applies get more money back than they spend. And, you know, people in Ontario, in Alberta, in Saskatchewan, they, those in Manitoba, they are getting big checks that are now delivered on a regular basis. In Alberta and Saskatchewan, it's more than $1,000. In Ontario, nearly $800. That is real money that people are getting back. Right, and that's why I tried to couch it as a Newfoundland Labrador specific, because we're not on the federal plan, so consequently, all the carbon tax applied to fuels here, not home heating fuels. So I was just trying to ask a very specific about this province question. Uh, Similar to the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States, and a 1% tax on corporate stock buyback. Now there's going to be a 2% tax on corporate stock buyback in this country to encourage investing back into their own companies here, Uh, invest domestically, create jobs. It hasn't necessarily always worked that way. How do you view this as be not only a potential deterrent to investment in the country, but how do you think they're going to translate it into an investment domestically? Um, Well, you've framed exactly what we're trying to do here. Um, Our point is, if companies have enough profits to be buying their own shares, um, then we're going to tax that transaction a little bit, modest 2%. And our intention is that that should just tilt their incentives a little bit. So when you're the CEO, you're looking, you're saying, wow, this is a good year. I have a lot of money. Uh, Maybe instead of buying back your shares, you'll take that money and you'll invest in expanding your business. Maybe you'll hire some more people. Maybe you'll invest in productivity of your business. Maybe you'll buy some new equipment. And so you'll be more productive and you'll be able to pay your workers that little bit more. So that's what we're trying to do. I think that, you know, something that is a long-standing challenge for the Canadian economy is we just have too low a level of business investment. In general, I am a huge booster of Canada and our economic performance coming out of the COVID recession has been outstanding. We have the strongest growth in the G7 this year. But one area where we lag is business investment. Businesses are just not investing enough in themselves and in the country. 
And this measure is a way of just giving them a little nudge and creating some incentives for them to invest more, buy back their shares less. Housing has been a big part of the GDP growth, as has the uh, natural resource sector. But with the government's uh, plan to attract 1.4 new, uh, 1.4 million new immigrants over the course of three years, how are we going to ensure we're prepared? Because we have supercharged uh, real estate markets in the notable cities in the country. But housing, even if we have more incentives with first-time house buy, home buyer credits and the like, the fact of the matter is we have a housing issue today. How can we do both at the same time? You know, even with new selection tools for immigrants, you know, focus on health care and construction, how can we be sure that a housing issue that doesn't get further exasperated or worse with the lofty optimistic numbers of up to 1.4 million immigrants in three years? Um, yeah, look, again, I think that's another really good question. And, you know, I really believe in immigration as something that drives economic growth in Canada. Uh, in Atlantic Canada, we are seeing immigrants revive communities um, that were aging and being diminished and depleted. So it's, it's really good for our country. It's what has built Canada and continues to build Canada. I, I don't deny but that you're point. You're totally right. No, no, I know, I know. You're totally right that if we want to continue attracting immigrants, we have to build homes for everyone. You've pointed to a couple of measures that I put into action yesterday to help young people buy that first house. The real challenge is supply. We need to build more homes, and we put in a real engine in the budget in April, the National Housing Accelerator Fund, which is there to drive the building of more homes across the country. We are committed to just pushing very, very hard on that. We're also, you know, one of the challenges, which I know you're, you know a lot about, is there just aren't enough skilled tradespeople to build the houses we need. And there are some significant measures that I announced yesterday to train more of the valuable skilled workers to build the houses that Canadians need and that new Canadians need. I'd like to get one more in there, please. So talking about the creation of jobs, you know, the launching of the Sustainable Jobs Secretariat, this is all about uh, low carbon economy and what have you. I'd like to know a little bit more about long-term vision because Canadians have been really good at researching and developing, not great at monetization. So we've done a lot of extraction here. We send stuff elsewhere. They do secondary or tertiary processing, and they sell it back to us. We're the only democratic country on the planet with every single critical mineral required for wind turbines, solar panels, electric electric vehicle batteries. But it's not going to really benefit us the max if we simply extract it and send it somewhere else. So what's the issue regarding supply chains? Because we've pointed a lot of blame at global supply chains chain interruptions, we can create and get out in front of the supply chain and be the leader worldwide in this type of critical mineral, rare earth minerals. What's the plan? Okay, Patty, music to my ears. I totally, totally agree. I think that this is the real shortcoming of the Canadian economy is productivity and just generally making the most of the stuff we have in the ground. I think we have to do a lot better. We put some big investments in doing that in the budget in April. We put in some further investments in the announcement I made yesterday in things like clean tech, clean hydrogen. These are real opportunities for Newfoundland and Labrador. We also have a Canada Growth Fund in there that is designed to bring in private capital. It's going to have $15 billion in it. 
And, you know, that's going to be to drive investment in doing exactly what you are talking about. It is great for us to be the hewers of wood and the drawers of water. But let's, you know, I don't know, turn that water into ice cubes and ice cream and turn that wood into houses and fancy wood products and sell the stuff once we have processed it. I totally agree. And I think we need to have that kind of can-do attitude across the whole country. Does unleashing what's in the ground include what could be a real important transition fuel being natural gas? Yes. Do you have time for one more? I, I better go, Patty. Better go. I, have to I know, I know I pushed people, my time. But I totally, the answer to your final question is a definitive and unequivocal, absolutely. Appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Okay, good okay. to talk to you. You too, bye-bye. As the Deputy Prime Minister of the Minister of Finance, Christian Freeland, let's take a break. When we come back, time for you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let's go. Line number two. Good morning, Lauren Pritchard. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? I'm very well. Thanks for asking. How about you? I'm well, thank you. Patty, I'm calling this morning to pay tribute to one of my colleagues who uh, most of your listeners would have heard of or at least felt the impact of his work. He passed away yesterday. I'm talking about Lieutenant uh, Morris Collins. Um, You remember when the pandemic hit and everybody was scrabbling to trying to figure out what they would do. Morris was in Port of Basque as a Salvation Army officer, and uh, he uh, he saw a need that the truckers had, and pulled together a team and started feeding truckers as they came off the boat to enable them to uh, have some little bit of creature comfort and also be able to continue the supply line. Uh, that's probably where he became best known, and uh, it caught the imagination. I mean, if you, I, I was a, I'm a Salvation Army officer now for 45 years. You, you ask people who I am, and not a lot of people would know. But if you ask the PMO's office, if you ask our Minister of Education, current Minister of Education, Social Services, the Premier, the Lieutenant Governor, uh, if you search your news. Uh, uh, history, if you search the news history of national news or even CBC's news or whatever, you're going to come up with Morris's name because they all knew. He caught the imagination of so many because of his humble service. And, Patty, something else people don't know is that when Morris put himself out there, stretching over a window and passing a meal to these truckers, he was one of the most vulnerable people that was there. He had a pre-existing condition. And uh, after a brief, brief stay in hospital uh, yesterday, he he died. And um, he was a captain now. He's uh, He'd been promoted, but he got his last promotion now. He's, uh, as we say in the Salvation Army, he was promoted to glory yesterday. And uh, I just have to pay tribute to uh, a dear, dear friend and a, such an esteemed colleague. Uh, many people, uh, and he served the communities. He's just been uh, uh, at this now for the last seven years or so in, in Engley and Port of Basque. And I'm sure the people of Port of Basque, uh, and, and thank God for Dave and Bev Harvey, Harvey are out there now helping them out. But they will all remember Morris uh, 
And uh, he was certainly thinking about them as they go through the nightmare that they're experiencing. Um, I have never met, uh, had never met Captain Collins, but I do know he was actually our contact for regarding the Happy Tree in Marystown as well. So the company has worked with Captain Collins over the years. So I just heard that news this morning. So obviously, as a, a friend and colleague of yours, we're sorry for your loss and offer our condolences to his entire Salvation Army family and, of course, his own family and friends. Thank you, Patty. And uh, condolences go out to his son, Chris, and uh, all, his dad, Alex, and, and, and all of the family. And uh, certainly, Morris epitomized what was the best about being a Salvation Army officer. And my hat's off to him. So thanks again for the time to do this this morning, and uh, appreciate your show. Thank you, Lauren. Stay in touch. Once again, I'm sorry to hear your sad loss. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Okay, let's see here. Let's go ahead and take a break for the newscast. Let me check in with producer, who was now Greg Smith. Got the revolving door going out there. How are we doing on the telephone, Greg? All right, let's take that break. When we come back, tons of time left to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Do not go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this hour on line number four. Say good morning to the Conservative Party of Canada member for Costa Bay, Central Notre Dame. That's Clifford Small. Clifford, you're on the air. Good morning. How are you this morning, sir? Okay, how about you? Can you you? hear me well? Uh, Not too bad. It's a little bit hollow, I have to say. Just one second here. I just pulled off. I was on Bluetooth. Okay. (laughs) Safety first. Safety first. Uh Uh-oh, now we've got a big echo. Uh, Clifford, do you want to maybe just call back now that you pulled up? Okay, so that's a little better. Let's go. (laughs) Well, I'm just calling in in response to Minister Freeland's uh, chat that you had with her there. And, um, uh, you know, since 2015, we've had sandbox politics. We've, We've had a government that's basically tried to run a bakery with the little kids ovens that you'd see in the Sears catalog back in the day. It's just not good enough. Canadians are hurting. Newfoundlanders and Labradorians are hurting. Uh, Even the NDP called on the federal government to take HST off home heating. We had a motion last week, which the government didn't support. Uh, Any announcements of money for Canadians that the minister has made is basically just giving in one hand what they took with the other. It's, and you know. So well, let me ask you a specific question. What was announced yesterday in the, so far as $30 billion plus of new spending over six years? What's a mistake? Um, Canadians are hurting. We've got homegrown inflation. We have all the things that in our in our in our toolbox here in Canada we can grow our food we can produce oil we can build homes we we have a forestry industry we have all the industries uh, mark carney said that our inflationary problem is basically homegrown so the the extra taxes that have come in because of the inflation that we've had in the last couple of years uh it's just being uh, some of it's give, being given back, but the middle class are left out. Uh, just as you mentioned to uh, to the minister, Patty, they're completely left behind and not mentioned, and they're 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 robbing their nickels to get a, 
try to make ends meet. And this this fall economic up, update simply does not cut it for the average person. What does support for the middle class look like? I know I asked the question, and I asked it for a reason. I assume I'm somewhere in that middle class. What does support look like, though? Like, how do you tailor up a package? Is it one-time checks flowing out the door? Because as soon as that would happen, then the, the cry from the opposition benches would be you're just contributing to inflation. So what does support for the middle class look like in your mind? Support for the middle class looks like getting rid of carbon tax, which is driving inflation on absolutely everything that we put our hands on. And we just had a mine shut down on the Bayford Peninsula. And part of that is because of the high cost of fuel and and carbon tax and where it's all going. We we can't produce the things that that we we need to produce to get the inflation down, which which would help all middle class, because they're kneecapped. By by the uh, by the government stand towards the environment, and it's it's wonderful. We need to support the environment, but we need to use technology, and we need to reduce carbon. The U.S. has done it. Canada has had uh, a higher carbon output since 2015, and we're paying more for it. So it it just doesn't make sense. Is it not fair to say that the American reduction in emissions versus ours, because you're right, carbon tax in place, emissions continue to grow in this country. Were we not talking about two different sets of circumstances, though? They had so many electricity uh, generating plants that were coal-fired, for instance. It's easy enough to walk away from that. We were in a much better position to start with. So is it a direct, fair comparison between us and the United States? Because our generating uh, realities were vastly different. Uh, We... Okay, so the U.S. converted a lot of their coal-burning plants to natural gas. The world needs to convert its coal-burning plants to natural gas. In Eastern Europe, in Africa, in Asia, there's a tremendous savings in, in carbon output by, by converting coal to natural gas. And we have the natural gas. We can create jobs. We can stimulate our economy with our natural resource industries. And, and eventually switch over to cleaner, hydrogen, there, you know, it's a transition. But right off the bat, the U.S. did it. They didn't even sign on to the Paris Accord, but lowered their emissions. Uh, it, it, it's mind-boggling what's been going on in this country, and, and we're paying for it every step of the way, Patty. What do you realistically think the contribution of carbon tax is to inflation? Because I – look – I want to talk about all the contributing factors to inflation because I'm a taxpayer. I have a family. Uh, walking to the grocery store is a bit more of a fright than it used to be. What implication do you really think the carbon tax has, though? And is it also fair to include all of the contributing factors to inflation as opposed to the, the catchphrase of just inflation? Because sometimes when we do these things, this is just my opinion, and then I'll get your reaction. Sometimes when we play simply the politics of inflation, then we probably avoid the conversation about how we can protect ourselves from inflation as opposed to saying, it's Trudeau's fault. How do we talk about the fact that supply chain issues have absolutely had an impact on inflation in this country? I hope you get my point is that sometimes when we politic the big issues, we don't get back to the solutions of the big issues. We have the political theater versus the rational conversations that talk about everything that contributes and what we can do about it. Your thoughts? Okay. I'll use the example of a loaf of bread. A farmer uses diesel in his equipment in his fields. Then they dry their grain with fossil fuel. Carbon tax right there. What kind of exemptions are afforded to that farmer? Uh, none. So, so then, mm-hmm. uh, then it's shipped. It's milled, all using, all using fuels. 
carbon tax. The bread is then made in a bakery using car- using fuel. It's carbon tax. Well, that it's all depends. Door, it, 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 it's shipped. Carbon tax goes on the fuel. And uh, even the grocery store, if they use fuel, it's carbon tax. So all of that goes into that loaf of bread before it gets to the consumer. Now, some of the, some of that is absolutely accurate, and some of it doesn't include some exemptions that are absolutely available in different parts of the supply chain. My point is that, look, we've got to talk about it, and I know the role of the opposition is clear, and it's critically important to hold government to account, to hold government's feet to the fire. My thoughts on some of these big issues of the day is that we get lost in the politics versus the issues that have really contributed to it, whether it be fair uh, criticisms of the Bank of Canada, whether it be fair criticisms about the impact of the carbon tax, but also including every other factor, because even if it's to be a little bit more self, uh, self-sustainable here in the country, to talk about our own supply chains, because remember, at the beginning of the pandemic, one of the big concerns was we didn't have a manufacturer for a vaccine. We weren't producing enough of our own personal protective equipment. Consequently, we got off to a ragged start there. Same thing, I think, in the contributing factors for inflation. Like I said to the minister earlier, is, you know, we have opportunities to be part of a global supply chain leader, not a follower. You know, extract the, the materials here and then refine them or produce them here, as opposed to send them somewhere else and then have them sent back at a profit. It, none of that really makes sense to me. That's where I think some of the conversation has been lacking, as opposed to the politics. And politics is never going away. I'm not begrudging anybody uh, doing the political issue. I just think we need way more in the form of solutions as opposed to, you know, and I know you understand my point here, and this is not coming at you or Polyev or anybody else because that's part of what we're doing. I just think there's some solution-based conversations that kind of get lost in the political theater sometimes, but fair enough. Um, Russ, would you like to go Clifford while we have you this morning? Well, um, I'll just I'll just go to carbon tax one more time, and uh, I don't know if you're sick of hearing it or not. No, I'm not. We're starting to see we're starting to see the fruit that's been beard from carbon tax that was basically uh, that's been coming about since 2015. We're only we're only a third of the way there, and consumers aren't going to be able to take it. You, I mean, you can you can say, well, we need to stop people from driving to the West Coast. Uh, we no. we need to stop people from going hunting up in Millertown. We, people going out on the bay to get a fish for the table. They're all having to pay for this. And, you know, you want to stop people from their activities. Those activities are an important part of their, their mental well-being. So it's a very big picture that we've got to look at here. And we need to use technology to reduce emissions. There's no doubt about it. But for the government to stand up and say carbon tax is going to stop storms from happening, it's not going to. It's, it's, this but, but they don't say that, started, though. It was said in the House of Commons not very long ago by, by one of our own federal MPs here. We need carbon tax to stop situations like happened in the fall with that big storm. So um, it's, there's so much ridiculous things being said. Uh, we we need to be focused and we need to be realistic, pragmatic, and practical. It, it, we need change, and uh, I think the people of this province are they see that the sunny days and sunny ways just haven't come to uh, fruition here, Patty. Uh, last one for you, Clifford. Uh, 
Do you think it would also be helpful if we were a little bit more straight shooting on things like the tripling of the carbon tax and the pending cold winter when, in fact, it doesn't kick into April? It's tripling over the course of eight years. And do you also think it would be helpful? I know you're a big supporter of your new leader, Mr. Polyev. Do you think it would also be helpful for us to be able to ask Mr. Polyev some questions so that we can get down to solution-based discussions in addition to the politics of the day? Because they can work hand in hand. So both. Do you think we should do a better job on accuracy of statements? And would you like Mr. Polyev to make himself available, for instance, to this show? Because I'd love to have him on again. Well, I'll mention it to him. I'll mention it to him the next time I see him. Okay. I'm sure he's he'd love to be on your show. And um, and uh, to say that it's misleading, it's not misleading that the carbon tax is going to triple by, by 2030. Yeah, but it's when right you position there. it, say that here comes the cold winter and you're about to triple the carbon tax, which is just simply making people afraid, but unnecessarily so, was my point, because if it doesn't kick into April, this winter has nothing to do with it. And then the tripling is over the course of a long time, uh, eight years by the end of the decade. So just just wondering if we can all do better, including the Liberals, absolutely including the Liberals. Like, for instance, I got a lot of reactions say that the minister simply spun a lot of answers to the questions that I was trying to get some real detailed answers to. So I think we can all do a little bit better. And consequently, I think if that happened, then the lives of Canadians would be better because we'd be talking about facts and reality and accuracy and solutions and all the rest of it, as well as playing the politics of the day, because that's just part of it and it's never going away. So this is not me taking an aim at you or your party or anyone else. This is just the nature of the beast. So I'll give you the final words this morning, Clifford. Absolutely, Patty, and I don't think you're taking aim at me. You're doing no, your I'm job, not. and you're doing a very good job. Um, well, April still winter in Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, I don't know if uh, I can recall, recall quite a few snowstorms at the beginning of April, but the, the crux of it is true. Carbon tax is going to triple by 2030. It's true. And people need to know. They need to be aware. A lot of people don't understand where this is going. And they have to be told. And it's our job as the official opposition to hold the government to account and to try to influence policy change and to to make people – and it's not necessarily us. You know, Christia Freeland didn't listen to us when she found some new money to, to come up with some, you know, $9 billion of spending or whatever. It's the public – when they find out what's happening, the, the public opinion forces government's hand. It's not the, the, it's not the official opposition. It's, it's educating the public because most people don't have time in their day-to-day lives to size all this up. And the, the, the Liberal government is not going to brag about the tripling of the carbon tax and the fact that carbon emissions are increasing. It's up to us to let them know. Okay. Fair enough. And look, I'm, I'm happy to say, because I've said it a thousand times in the past, I'm not so sure the current carbon tax plan is the most effective, nor do I think the one put forward by your party last time around seemed or sounded like the most effective, even though uh, former Prime Minister Harper is a supporter of carbon tax. Carbon tax has been proven to be the most efficient and effective way to do it, but how you implement it appropriately and appropriately and doesn't have a negative impact, uh, say, for instance, on the food supply chain. Those are fair points, and they should be a big part of this conversation. Uh, Clifford, I'm really late for the break, but I'm glad you made time for the show. You're always welcome. All right. You have a great weekend. God bless. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. That's, of course, uh, Clifford Small. He is the Conservative Party of Canada member for, what is it, Costa Bay Central Notre Dame. Let's take a break. Don't come back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Caller, you're on the air. Thanks for taking my call. Happy to do it. Um, 
just want to make a couple of quick comments on um, our own Watergate scandal here in Newfoundland, and I call it Fishgate, about Premier Fury's trip to to Labrador uh, fishing. I think uh, I'm not a fan of the Premier, but I think he done the right thing. And uh, we're changing as a new world. There's going to be a new economy and new new powers. And I think that uh, he, he's got Newfoundland's best interest. He's from here. His family's here. I think you know almost all the politicians have. Newfoundland in their best interest, but we got to get on this. The world is changing, and like it or lump it, we got to get on this this new way of doing business and things and energy. So I think he made the right move, and the PC should just knock it off, get back to fixing housing and health care where we need it instead of wasting our time at this. He totally made the right decision, and whether he did or not bring business here, who cares? It's coming. So I think he did good. What I would say to that is. The way the, the population perceives politics and politicians is also really important here because we've got an apathy and a cynicism and a negative uh, approach to politics that is probably not doing us much in the way of favors. We've got to ask them questions. We've got to hold their feet to the fire. And things like this, optics really count. You know, they do. It derails more important conversations. I'll agree with that point in full. And the premier knows better. You know, he could have met with John Risley anywhere. I don't begrudge anybody a fishing trip with their father. Fill your boots. Do whatever you got to do. But when we're talking business, let's do it in the business settings. Because if we don't, then we're going to do exactly what you said a moment ago. We'll talk about this stuff versus the other stuff. And hopefully that's not what we have, what happens. Because the politicians on the opposition benches will say, that's exactly what these announcements like replacing St. Clair's is. To take away from some other negative things. I think the, the vice versa can also be associated with your point. We're talking about fishing trips when there's other things out there that mean a whole lot more to everyday Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. So so just optics will always be important in politics. And when politicians don't realize that or they do things like this, then we get distracted by stuff that may or may not be important. And that's up to individuals as to where the, this is on their scandal list or their importance list. But fair enough. Yeah. And like you say, PCs are real ones to credit. They got us in this financial trouble anyway, the Muskrat Falls disaster, which is just is going to be a countless amount of money and probably never a lot of power come from it. So that's their that's their legacy, that Danny's legacy. They can carry that. So but they're no better than everybody else. And I don't support either party. I'm independent. So but anyway, I do think he made the right move and knock it off, get back to business and bring in some bring in some more people here in this province. We need them. So appreciate the uh, time. Well done, Jerry. <laughs> All right, thanks, Fair enough. Uh, you're welcome. Bye bye. Yeah. Bye bye. Uh, let's go. What do you want me to do here? Let's go to one. Bruno, you're on the air. <laughs> Hi, Patty. I'll leave that last conversation that you had alone for now. <laughs> I, 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 want, I want to start with tell, talking to you about an absolutely hilarious conversation I had with Tim last week and in your absence. Uh, <laughs> Tim was adamant, and he kept stopping me every time I tried to suggest that the meeting uh, held in the fishing lodge uh, discussed uh, the wind project and what was announced a few days later, and that, uh, in effect... No, it wasn't. Uh, they set things up so that... Uh, uh, thing, so they were ready to go out of the gate. Um, so anyway, Tim would stop me at every turn and say... Were you in the room? If you weren't in the room, it's impossible for you to say that uh, they had any discussions about the upcoming wind energy project and and, uh, the three blocks of land uh, that they were going to give 
uh, a quick environmental assessment too. None of that, according to Tim, was discussed on that fishing trip. How do you feel about that? How do I feel about how Tim handled your call? Is that the question? No, how Tim feels uh, more broadly about the fact that no one uh, should have the right to say anything about what happened on that fishing trip because we weren't in the room. Oh, I don't care. You can say whatever you want. (laughs) Not so sure you know any different from me. If you want to say something negative about it, fire away. What am I supposed to do? Well, I mean, it's rather ridiculous, isn't it? To suggest that there was no discussion of the wind project uh, during that. Anyway, the point I'm trying to make is that when someone like Tim stands in in your stead, who is so obviously uh, a narrowly uh, a political animal that, uh, you know, would want you to believe that there was no discussion during that fishing trip about this wind project and uh, that uh, uh, my point is that when someone's that partisan he shouldn't be uh, hosting full-time programs like uh, like yours tim's a a Uh, conservative pundit tim Tim is a conservative pundit i don't know what you're talking about there and just for accuracy's sake there the announcement of royal energy gh2 didn't happen in a few days after the fishing trip it was three months later before there was even a talk of banning or lifting the ban on wind uh generation here in this province and then it was number months again later before royal energy gh2 was announced or proposed All right. So you're suggesting that there was no link between... Bruno, I'll I'll tell you what, and this is the only time I'm going to warn you with this one today. If you put words in my mouth, we're just saying goodbye. That's it. I said something very straightforward, nothing about who said what to who when. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about, frankly, but I'll try again. I'm sure you don't. Anyway, go ahead. Very quickly, let's get to the topic before we run out. When someone acts in such a partisan manner, they shouldn't be hosting an open line program. Take it up with my boss and That's the point that I want to make. You can take it up with my manager. Whether you agree with that or not, it's obvious on its face that uh, his claim that uh, there was no discussion between the premier and uh, the principles of uh, the GH2 project is uh, just silly. Do you really uh, want to occupy all your time talking about this with me? Who has no say, wasn't there, didn't hear it, don't know what you're really talking about? You, if you have a problem with Tim, you can take it up with my breasts. That's not what I'm here to do. I have right, no say in who sits you. in. Let's, let's move on, shall we? Very quickly, keep going. Um, the... Uh, There was an interesting article on the Gnarly blog about this, and uh, they mentioned a link to a weather channel story about a project on the Gaspé Peninsula uh, that is a model uh, that some Micmac communities are doing uh, of integrating uh, both large-scale, but for their use, primarily small-scale wind uh, slash battery storage uh, slash uh, solar uh, slash a microgrid to integrate all of those 
for those small communities. Uh, going back to uh, the environmental assessment on Muskrat Falls, I kept pounding that as a benefit to the Micmac community, they should find a way of extending power to those communities. In just the fashion that's happening in, in Quebec now, uh, it's very interesting uh, integrating all of those things. The small-scale windmills, because uh, they don't have enough, uh, they don't have enough need for the power for the large ones. So you have smaller-scale windmills and um, batteries and the whole thing integrated into a microgrid, and it's very interesting. And uh, Newfoundland and Labrador should be in the forefront of doing that. Um, and uh, people like those GH3 people should uh, be willing to do that up front as a contribution to the uh, people of Newfoundland and Labrador. They also talk about the figures, you know, the $10 million in total that he's offering is uh, a puny compared to a project in Quebec, uh, where a project that is just 150 megawatts pays 10 million a year uh, to the local uh, Micmac band, uh, and I and I think it comes to 600 million. I've forgotten the number, but uh, right. it makes uh, the the offering of 10 million over three years uh, look pretty puny. Uh, yeah, not, so, that's not even directly associated with the project if and when it gets up and running. That was a standalone pot of money. Whether or not there's further relationship and cost share or, pardon me, revenue share that's part of it eventually, I have no earthly idea. I don't think anybody does. But that $10 million isn't as a, uh, this is what you're getting out of the project, end of story. It isn't? Well, <clears throat> why do you think not? Why do you think not? Because we haven't, we don't even know what the negotiated agreement looks like, whether it be between the province, the company, the locals, the indigenous communities. We don't have any of those details. None. If that becomes the reality, when the when the project gets a green light or not, then I guess we'll all have a bit more information to work with, like actual information. Uh, appreciate well, we, the time, we, Bruno. Uh, have yourself a nice weekend. We know that Risley is saying, "Hurry up." Yep. And give me the, the green light, not only on this parcel of land, but on several others. Two more, yeah. Three up. Three-phase project, up, as he refers to it. And he has said out loud he sees no reason why it won't get greenlit. But so, so has said every proponent of every project ever. Right? I mean, that's how they talk. Right? They want to put forward the public position that my project is good, it's sound, it's environmentally sustainable and, and uh, realistic. So that's how people talk, right, when they're in those seats. Uh, oh, yeah. And here's, uh, here's Br- a Bruno, for your pocket. We're going to have to say goodbye. <coughs> Ten seconds. Go ahead. And that's it. Ten. Go. Uh, I'm just suggesting that you're being offered a little or nothing and uh, that uh, the province of Newfoundland has nothing to benefit that it's a backroom deal again that's cut between your premier and uh, the local uh, uh appreciate the time bruno
Yeah, all right, I won't say it. So well, I don't know. I, it wasn't me who stalled. It was you. If you have something left to say, honest to God, Bruno, 10 seconds. This is just excruciating when we try to say goodbye all the time. Go. All right, I'll say goodbye. Okay, let's have a nice weekend. Bye-bye. Let's take a break. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Uh, welcome back. Let's go to line number three. Jim, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. Morning to you. Uh, I got you two good questions now. I don't know if you agree or disagree. Either way, we're the government. Uh, how do we put it now? Okay, we're getting a bit of money coming in for income, different kinds of income, right? You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. Now we got here. We got the homeless people on the streets in this province in Labrador, and here they got next to nothing to live or got my money in their pockets to spend. Look, uh, I just understand that are they entitled for a bit of money for that? Well, are we talking about this $500 check issue? Yes. If you have filed your taxes uh, last year, you are eligible if you were in less than $100,000. So that's one of the tricks with whether or not the people who need it the very most are actually going to get this money. So whether it be some of the clients, for, for instance, at the gathering place, whether it be homeless people in different parts of the province, if they haven't filed their taxes, they're not going to get it. Now, you can file your taxes by the end of the year and get it, but how many of these folks have filed taxes? That's, that's the trick question. So there's no definitive answer to yours because I don't know if the person that you're referring to has filed their taxes or not. Okay, now the second question. Uh, now, they're talking about, like, uh, I think the federal government bought up there, I think it was two years ago, or, or, or quite, I'm sure that's what they said. They said that they're going to build, build a little units down here for the homeless people in Newfoundland and Labrador. So uh, you, could you remember that them saying that? Say that again? They're going to, build, they're going to take, get the homeless people out the streets to, uh, to a little small place until they get out the streets. Because I remember they said that one time. I'm sure I'm not dreaming about this. I'm sure the federal government said that they're going to do something for the homeless people, that they're uh, going to take them out the streets and, and like, put them in a place to get out the streets. Because just imagine living all year long on the streets, all kinds of bad weather. I don't think we like it. No. The federal government did come to town, of say, around a year ago and uh, talk about a plan for affordable housing in the St. John's region in particular. I don't recall anyone saying we're going to take you off the street and put you somewhere. I'm not sure what you might be referring to. Well, anyway, it'd be nice. We'd be, uh, like I said, you got money for everything else, like the, the big big old buildings, uh, what, you know, industries, you got lots of money for that. So why can't you help the little people out the streets and give them a place to stay? Another thing, if they ever get them out the streets, I think that'd be good if, if the if the one staff streets were good and you got a place to stay. So how you know? Did, well, I don't know. Or the government know they don't go into the workforce. I think that'd be pretty good, wouldn't it? That would be better than living on the streets. Yes, of course it yeah, would. Well, that's because once the government starts start doing something, a little place for them, so they get off streets, and then jobs and go 15 bucks an hour. Well, these town people probably get a job, get a chance to get trained, whatever, and have a few bucks in the pockets. There are some plans and programs out there to accommodate that scenario, but... It's going I, to happen. There we go. That's all talk. No action. They need to do more, Jim. We have money talk. Homelessness is a massive problem. We don't see it, so we don't talk about it. I appreciate the time, Jim. I hope you're doing okay. Okay. All the best. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Let's see here. Talk about an event coming up. It's got a line of report. Say good morning to the Liberal member from Mount Sio. She's the Minister of Digital Governance Service, NL, as well as another couple of portfolios. Minister Sarah Studley, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and thanks for taking my call. No problem. 
Yeah, so I wanted to let your listeners know and the, the public, um, we are having a public ceremony of remembrance for road traffic victims on Wednesday, November 16th uh, at 11 a.m. here in Confederation Building, and it'll be live streamed on uh, our Facebook as well. Um, and so we're working with, you know, Gail Thorne from the Stanford Hanna Foundation and Sarah Pittman. Um, I just want to thank them for helping us to organize the event. Uh, and so members of the public will be able to join us for that event, and anyone who's kind of lost a, a relative or had someone injured in a road traffic accident, you know, whether a pedestrian, an off-road vehicle, or a bicycle, um, you know, we're inviting them to, you know, bring a memento, lay a wreath, um, bring something and place it in memory if they like. They can tell us a bit about their loved one. Uh, we're just kind of changing the format a bit this year um, and having it more of like a, a, a remembrance ceremony for for those who have lost someone. It's an important event. I've been to uh, I've been to these uh, several times over the years, and this is not to take away from the importance of remembering and respecting those who have been lost, but also to talk about what we do to see those numbers fewer and fewer over the years about road safety, because you know, for instance, nothing slows you down quite like a police cruiser coming in the other direction. So what do we do and pragmatically to keep the roads safer? Because it's just I mean just driving around St. John's. It is the furthest thing from a safe place to drive. Then we've had so many stories this year about people lost on highways, uh, highways and byways, whether they be on an ATV or a passenger or vehicle. So what are we doing to make the roads safer? Thanks, Patty. That's an excellent question. So uh, the first thing I guess we've just done uh, recently is we have Bill 9. We made changes to the Highway Traffic Act. And so we looked at which offenses were, you know, worked with the uh, the law enforcement on which offenses were most likely, you know, to cause injury and death. Um, and so we've increased highway traffic fines, or they will be increased as of April 3rd, uh, fines by $100 for if speeding, um, if you're speeding in a construction zone and school zones, uh, as well as if you get caught race- racing and stunting. And then I think the most significant from my perspective is we've significantly increased the demerit points that you lose. So if you're caught speeding uh, 51 kilometers an hour or more over the speed limit, caught racing or stunting, um, you would lose or gain six demerit points. Uh, and Patty, if you have had your license for less than a year, so if you're if you have a you, you don't have your full class uh, class five license yet, that means that you would lose your license immediately. Um, so that's a significant impact, and we want to send a, send a strong message uh, that this type of behavior is not acceptable. Um, and then, Patty, the third change we've made is uh, if you get caught in speeding over 151 kilometers an hour, racing or stunting, uh, we're impounding your vehicle for seven days. That's a significant increase from the two days that it currently is today. Um, and we're also uh, working on the speed camera initiative. It's not going fast enough, in my opinion, but uh, we're hoping to have a pilot uh, early 2023 um, to make speed cameras available for municipalities. Um, you know, and we're the government. We're hoping to use them in school zones, construction zones, things like that. Uh, very quickly before we run out of time, I know that part of your responsibilities as the minister is you're responsible for the office of the chief information officer. Now, there's been a lot of talk in the news lately about Bill 20 not being presented to Mr. Harvey's office and all the kerfuffle that has come on the heels of it. And Minister Osborne says they could have could have, and should have done better. Your thoughts on how the government proceeded with Bill 20? Because accountability, transparency and the critical role Michael Harvey plays is an important part of not just politics, but faith in government. Absolutely, Patty. And so I guess for my department, I have a very heavy legislative department, and uh, my team does work with the Office of the Chief Information, uh, sorry, um, the Privacy Commissioner's Office. Uh, when we do e- any bill, uh, particularly ones where we think there's a privacy component, um, and so they work with um, Commissioner Harvey's office 
and that's part of the process. Um, and so I, I was not intimately involved in the issues, uh, you know, yesterday and this week um, with the new health authority bill. Um, but it is a normal process, and I, you know, I thank the privacy commissioner for his very important work that him and his team do. Uh, last one. When we last spoke on this program, this was a little bit out of left field. But in this province, you're allowed to change your name if you're on the sex offender registry, unlike other provinces where you cannot run and hide. Now, I know there's some reporting that is also done in conjunction with this, but we talked about whether or not we're going to change the law. And if you are on the sex offender registry, you cannot change the name of this province. Have we made any uh, forward movement on it? Uh, we're still investigating that. So, you know, if we're going to make a legislative change, there's a significant process that we have to do internally to government. Um, so at the moment, we're talking to some of the other provinces who ha- have allowed that um, and just working out what that's going to look like in Newfoundland and Labrador, because I guess there's the process for everyone who changes their name. But we also have to think about, you know, all the knock-on implications um, and what that means for anyone who wants to change their name for another reason, for example, if you get married. Um, so we're just working through some of the details on that. But it is a high priority for me. Uh, fair enough. Uh, one more time, the details for the event coming up. Yeah, so Wednesday, November 16th at 11 a.m. in the Federation Building. It's our a public ceremony of remembrance for road traffic victims. And anyone's invited, uh, and especially, you know, if you've lost someone or if you've been injured in a road accident, uh, you're welcome to come and bring a memento and, and lay it in memory. Appreciate the time this morning, Minister Studley. Thank you. Thank you so much, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Minister Sarah Studley. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking collective bargaining. Don't go away. Uh, welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two and say good morning to Chris Bossy with the Longshoremen's Protective Union. I'm pretty sure this is the Chris Bossy. Good morning, Chris. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. It's, uh, it is Chris Bossy, and I think you got the, the, the other Chris in mind. Uh, I'm, with, I'm the regional VP with the Union of Canadian Transportation. Oh, yes. So, okay. Sorry. No, no worries. Just wanted to, to have a chat this morning about what's going on, I guess, with regards to employment and labor and collective bargaining and and the use of uh, what's what's referred to as the nuclear option, um, like we're seeing in Ontario right now, um, where we're witnessing now, you know, labor shortages. We're seeing uh, it, it affects uh, restaurants and and other businesses closing higher inflation rates, right? So it's interesting to see that the Federal Minister of Labor is, is also introducing anti-scab legislation because there seems to be um, a fair bit of labor unrest uh, um, coming coming ahead, right? Um, certainly living in interesting times. Wanted, Patty, I know I called in a couple of times and I spoke about collective bargaining at the Port of St. John's. And uh, right now, our union, with, with the Public Service Alliance Canada, is in bargaining with the federal government for uh, for members we have with Treasury Board, and, and and those those talks aren't going great. And we're gone to a process called the PIC. And uh, it was interesting that that uh, the Prime Minister said the other day that uh, that Doug should honour the collective bargaining process because I think uh, I think that's the right thing to do, and I, I think that's what. Uh, that's what I hope Justin does as well, and respects people's right to uh, right to strike. But what's going on at St. John's Port is is a little bit different than all of that. And uh, but just and, for and just the, for clarification, you say you hope Justin X, Y, and Z. What what was that? Is that about the Prime Minister? 
Yeah, yeah, no, I hope Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister, in collective bargaining with our members of the Treasury Board, uh, you know, lives up to his words that he said to Doug that he uh, that he will uh, bargain, right, in, in good faith and uh, respect the right to strike if our members elect to uh, to go that route. Yeah, so just let me connect some of the dots for the listeners who might not know exactly what we're talking about here. The initial reference to the nuclear option, right, was the poison pill that the premiers put forward to ratify the charter in 1982. And it's Section 33. This is the non-withstanding clause, which should be very, very rarely used or even uttered, but now they're talking about it in the province of Ontario. Basically what it does, it, begi- it gives the provincial legislators uh, an opportunity to to usurp or override certain portions of the Charter for a full five-year term. This time, the implication is regarding negotiations between QP and the province for the people that are working in the education system. So that's why we're talking notwithstanding clause, which is extraordinary. I mean, I can't even believe they're getting away with it, and they might not get away with it. But uh, that's the reference, just so people know exactly where we're going or what we're talking about. Chris? Yeah, no, thanks. Thanks, Patty, for, for connecting those dots. And, and I guess any time you use... Uh, those extreme measures to overpower another party in a, in a, in a relationship, whether it's a negotiation or whatever, uh, it affects the relationship going forward, no doubt. Um, but what I also want to talk about, Patty, is, is what's happening at the Port of St. John's. And we had been to conciliation last time I spoke, and, and the, collective, uh, the collective agreement still remains outstanding. Um, we went to, went to conciliation uh, about a month ago, and... Uh, we had two days scheduled. We indicated uh, where we could move and how we could see a, an agreement coming together. And the employer, unfortunately, wouldn't even come into the room and in the same room with us and cancelled after the first day of negotiation and said basically they have no room to move. And the issue there is uh, is around their practice around standby. So, uh the CEO, Sean Hanrahan, had sent a letter to to our members and outlined what he's seen as outstanding. And, and two of the things he mentioned were standby pay and to, so modernization of the existing language on standby pay and the withdrawal of two grievances related to standby pay. And he says, I think, you know, we, we'd like to think that the conclusion of this process is close with effectively only one outstanding issue. And that's that's around standby pay. So uh, what he's trying to do is is get the members down there to turn on one member who who feels that uh, their rights are being uh, infringed upon because they're required to work standby uh, or not work standby, I guess, to carry a standby phone one-third of the year, 24-7. So to do a a week at a time. And, and what they what they give for remuneration is approximately five dollars an hour to to be able to carry that phone. The collective agreement article says where the authority requires an employee to be available on standby duty and to provide telephone consultation during off duty hours, an employee shall be entitled to the following payment, and it's it's one hour for every eight hours of standby. And, and that's to be available. But what they're saying, with the telephone consultation, any call to that person answers, they, they don't pay them overtime. Now, the collective agreement and the law, the Canada Labor Code, is pretty clear that any hours inside your regular hours of work that you work, you get paid at least 
time and a half by, by, the, by the code. What the employer wants to add and email to the telephone consultation piece. And, and because that person also has to send a lot of emails, has to approve uh, permits for people on the, on the port. So what, what they've done is they've taken, uh, uh, taken what is really against the law. I mean, the Canada Labor Code is, says it's okay to have someone on standby, but you, you have to pay them for hours worked outside the regular, regular hours. And the person is not on standby if, if you don't, is not working when they're on standby if you don't discipline them if they're not able to return to work, right? So we've got, so when I look at the port's website, right, and I'm, and I'm wondering why did the port want someone to be on standby uh, 24-7 and not pay them anything other than five bucks an hour? And they're answering calls and coordinating emergency responses and the docking of ships and the approval of crane uh, permits. So I look at the, the port's website, and I see, you know, they pay $302,000 a year to the city of St. John's. They've raised 210000 in fundraising over the past 13 years. And $397 million has been contributed to the provincial GDP, right? <clears throat> they say that their Newfoundland and Labrador's primary and most advanced container terminal primary offshore energy supply and service center, a destination of choice for cruise ships. In their oh, okay. contacts, they have two, two numbers that you can contact after hours, right? And, and that's that phone that gets passed to our member and our member has to answer. When you look at the remuneration disclosure, so under Article 37 of the... Just because of the time on the clock, Chris, if we can get to the summary statement before I, they flag me off to the news because I'm already late. So let's get to the punch, the summary statement before we have to go. Okay, so they got to disclose their salaries because of the Marine Act. And, and in the salaries, the president and CEO made $350,000 last year. And he's holding collective bargaining at ransom over paying overtime to a member that he's requiring to carry a telephone and answer uh, 24-7 and not bear for the work that she's doing. And, and I think that's disgraceful, and I think they should come to the table and conclude this round of bargaining. Where the bargaining beling, b- uh, belongs, at the table. Uh, thanks for your time, Chris. I'm sorry we didn't have a bit more, but i got to get to the newscast, sir. No, thank you. Take care. Take care. All righty, yeah. bye-bye. Let's go ahead and take a break for that news. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to town councillor down in the town of Marystown. That's Gary Miles. Hi, Gary. You're on the air. Good day, Mr. Daly. How are you today, sir? Top shelf, sir. How are you doing? I am not doing too bad at all. I wanted to give you a call this morning, uh, sir, to... uh, let you and your listeners know of a big fundraiser that we have uh, coming up here in Marystown this Sunday for Daffodil Place. It's uh, hosted or organized and hosted by the Friends of Daffodil Place, Buren Peninsula. And uh, this is quite uh, quite an, an involved event. It, uh, it'll go for four hours on Sunday afternoon. It'll be uh, on Facebook Live 
on the Friends of Daffodil Place Buren Peninsula Facebook page and will be taking place at St. Gabriel's Hall in Marystown. And for the four hours, we will have entertainment. We will have uh, stories of battles won, stories of battles lost, and uh, we will have um, all sorts of information regarding uh, Daffodil Place. But, of course, the big thrust is the fundraising, and we are out to make as much money as we can to help out Daffodil Place in St. John's. Well, like you would, because, you know, when Daffodil Place was first the concept and the fundraising, the capital fundraising campaign took place, they raised enough money for the bricks and mortar to build it, not for ongoing operations. So the Canadian Cancer Society has to really scramble for operation costs, coverage at Daffodil Place, because just think about it. The stress of the diagnosis of cancer, the travel to St. John's, maybe having to take time away from your job then the lodging and everything else goes with it so for a standard room at Daffodil Place it's $30 per day for one person uh, two single beds or I think or a queen size bed 20 bucks per day for each additional person so imagine the cost coverage and the comfort you get with people that have shared life experience uh, opportunity to be here to save some money regardless if you had to stay at a hotel because not everyone's got a friend or a family member to stay at their home when they're in St. John's for their treatment so Daffodil Place is critical important so I'm glad you're doing what you're doing and you know uh, Daffodil Place is in St. John's yes but it is for residents of the rest of the island outside of St. John's and here on the Buren Peninsula we're, we're a part of that so we feel that uh, you know uh, our people are taking advantage of the services offered by Daffodil Place so, you know, let's uh, let's help them out and uh, raise some money to uh, help with running the place. 100%. Give the folks the details one more time, Gary, about where, when, and how they can participate. Okay. It's this Sunday between 1 and 5. It's on uh, the Friends of Daffodil Place Buren Peninsula Facebook page and is taking place at St. Gabriel's Hall. Now, we'd love for you to tune in on Facebook, but... We'd love to see you drop down to St. Gabriel's Hall uh, as well. You know, there will be a lot happening down there, and uh, it's going to be a happening four hours, and we'd just love for everyone to take part in it as much as possible. I'll be co-hosting with uh, an old friend of mine, uh, Fred Dodge, so, you know, we, we, uh, we're fit for anything, so, we, you know, God only knows what we could come up, <laughs> what we could come up with on Sunday. Simmer down, Gary. <laughs> Have a good time with it, and good luck. Hopefully it's a roaring success. We're, uh, thank you so much, sir, and I really appreciate the opportunity to do this. Pleasure. Stay in touch. Thank you. You're welcome, Gary. Bye-bye. It's Gary Miles. He's one of the counselors in the town of Marystown. I might have dumped that call before he was saying goodbye. My apologies to Gary. So, Greg, I won't take a call before the break so we can kind of hit the goalpost. You know the deal with me. And break time. All right, quick check-in on the Twitter before we do go. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. And someone thanking the minister for promoting the event coming up on Wednesday, November 16th at 11 a.m. at the confederation building it's the world day of remembrance for those lost in road accidents so that's an important one i've been to those many times in the past it's very somber but it's important we're also taking your emails it's open line of let's go ahead and take a break when we come back Plymouth forcey he's the pc member for 
exploits. Uh, he's going to be joining us to talk about long-term care. And then Tim wants to talk about doctors and phone call appointments. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the PC member for the voting district of exploits. That's Playman Forsey. Playman, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning. Patty, uh, this week, uh, of course, we learned that the uh, new 60-bed uh, long-term care unit in, in Grand Falls, Windsor, is still only half capacity. You know, we're still only with 30 residents in that in that unit. And I've been still getting calls from uh, uh, family members, you know, trying to get their trying to get their family loved ones into the long long term care units, and uh, you know, relieving stress off the off the healthcare system. But uh, back last fall, uh, former Minister uh, Minister Haggy, of course, he said that uh, in January 2022, the uh, long term care unit would be fully staffed, and up and running in, in January 2022. And and to learn now, Patty, that 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 uh, that unit is still only at half capacity at 30 residents is uh, is disturbing you know what's the root cause for why the delay in reopening and opening all the beds well when they came in to uh, do the ribbon cutting on it uh, during the spring you know they said that they were moving residents in and uh, and having the full staff uh, i did ask the question to the current minister in the house on tuesday and he alluded to the fact that uh, you know it, would be, it was staffing uh, it was staffing issues and the same problem across across Canada, Alberta, and and, and those places. You know, but uh, but uh, you know to, to to know that there's only only uh, half staff now when when it was supposed to be fully staffed and up and running. Yeah, you know, even when they open up the largest long-term care facility in the province down in Pleasantville, I mean, they couldn't even fill all the beds because we didn't have the staff for them. This is an ongoing problem. So it's been four years we've had the exact same problem. I don't know where the complication lies. Like I hear a commercial here on our station talk about training, educational training for uh, personal care attendants. You know, is it that it's such an arduous job that doesn't come with the required rate of pay? Is it because we have an aging demographic with so many more long-term care beds that need that people need so i don't know but i think it's just like many things in the economy we've got a perfect storm here yeah we do patty and you know if, if we need to get more programs in place to especially for lpns and and you know nurses and that's what's that's what's needed in the uh, long-term care so even the lpns yeah you know, we're always talking about uh you know the healthcare system you know from doctors right on down but i mean see so, you know you know we got a we got a big problem throughout the entire system you know and, and when you're talking about long-term cares with the lpns and and uh, and nurses you know we need to get more uh, more programs in place to make sure you know if we're we're putting those units up like that that we can we can staff those units and put the uh, people in place there and have residents in place and not uh, not to tying up our uh, our uh, major hospitals you know with acute care beds when that streams lines down through the system that someone else needs beds what we also have to remember is when these two 60 bed units in gander and grand falls windsor were built it was under a public partner public private partnership the old p3 and what ended up happening was some sort of Whoever fell down on the job, whether it be the contractors and or the inspectors, we ended up with hundreds of deficiencies, which kept the beds closed, the entire facilities closed for months on end, all the while people are in hospital waiting for the bed, getting charged a fee. That said, to set up the question, the P3, at one point, there was a lot of conservatives leaning towards P3 as being a viable option, uh, especially with those two facilities. So where are we now? What are your thoughts? Because we're looking at the potential for another P3 if and when there's a replacement for St. Clair's. We've already got it in play for the mental health and addictions facility here at Penitentiary. Where does your party come down on the P3? 
Well, the P3s, Paddy, I mean, so you got to go out for, uh, go out for tenders and make sure, it, you know, everything is on the up and up and uh, and it, everything is in play and make sure that uh, those programs, you know, when when they're in place, that uh, that the buildings alone, the facilities alone are up are up to uh, the standards that those people can go in and, and make sure it's all done at the time. Uh, so we need to make sure, you know, at the time, and, and I know when the long-term care was, uh, you're right, when the long-term care in, in Grand Falls, Windsor, and in Gander, of course, when they did uh, when they did do the uh, opening on it, they came in to cut the ribbon uh, for, for the opening on it, and then it left another couple of months because they ran into uh, major, major problems of uh, deficiencies in the, in the long-term care units, which uh, which caused delays into, uh, into getting people into those beds. So yeah, we we need to certainly pay attention to that and make sure that those units are ready, ready and uh, ready to take uh, take patients when the time comes. Yeah, the P3 conversation I think is as important as is the timing of the announcement and the lack of consultation, or whether it be with the NLMA or anybody else prior to the out of nowhere announcement coming from the premier and various ministers about St. Clair's. Anything else this morning, Pleeman? Before I take another call. No, Patty, I'd just like to recognize, I know the minister was on earlier about the World Day of Remembrance, and uh, I'd just like to re- recognize that for November 16th and encourage uh, any, uh, everyone to uh, to be in attendance. Appreciate the time. Thank you, Patty. Thanks, Flamin. All the best. Bye-bye. Flamin Forrest, he's the PCM member for Exploits. Let's continue on with line number two. Tim, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you doing this morning? Top shelf. How about you? here uh doing great doing great um the reason i'm calling you today is uh you know i know you get a lot of calls about our wonderful situation with healthcare uh system and doctors and all that and you know i do want to lead that with like i know how busy and overwhelmed it is and and, you know having an understanding that can be difficult especially when you're waiting on treatment or appointment or all that right um but i had a quite interesting situation i had uh you know i don't talk to the doctor much i'm a relatively healthy man and, and doing that but i have some prescriptions and stuff that i need to take on a daily basis and, uh, you know, I made a phone appointment uh, because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm busy. You know, I, I work remotely sometimes. I, I have a lot of client meetings that I have to travel to. I'm in sales and things like that. And so I made the phone appointments, had to wait, you know, whatever, a week, maybe 10 days, whatever it was. That's fine. You know, it wasn't urgent, uh, you know, um, and that was cool. So when the doctor had to call me, I actually had to be in New Brunswick for a work uh, meeting. Um, you know, I wasn't, I didn't move here. I didn't leave the province. I just went for a week for a meeting. And when she picked up the phone and started talking to me, first thing she asked me was if I was physically in, uh, where I was physically at the moment, um, not where I live or where, you know, I'm from and, and, and all of that. Um, and I mentioned I was in business in New Brunswick for a, a client meeting. And she said that she could not help me. She could not help me uh, make refill my prescription. She couldn't do anything with me on the phone uh, because I wasn't physically in Newfoundland. And that's kind of where my problem uh, comes in today. And I didn't know if you heard anything about such things, but basically I was floored because had I known that, I would have just lied and said where I was. I mean, it's nobody's business where I am when I'm on the phone or it doesn't even matter. She wouldn't know ever um, if I was where I was. But because I was truthful and told her that I was in New Brunswick, um, she could no longer fill my prescription for me. Uh, so are you just away temporarily, personal or yeah. business? Or? Yeah, I had, I, had a, I had a couple of meetings. I had a couple of meetings in St. John, one in Moncton. You know, I, I come back to the I live in the province of a house there with my partner, you know, like it's 
I was just traveling for work for, for a few days. And she said that because I wasn't in Newfoundland, she couldn't talk to me on the phone about my doctor's meetings um, and suggested that I should find a walk-in clinic or an emergency department here in Moncton uh, to get what I needed. Um, you know, I didn't even want my prescription filled while I was here. I just, you know, that's just when the appointment happened to be. I just wanted, I wanted it sent to my pharmacy and, you know, shoppers on Martian Road. And just get it when you get home, yeah. Um, that, it sounds kind of odd and counterintuitive on a couple of fronts. Number one, I'm with you. What difference does it make if this is your primary residence and you use MCP and then whatever else? Then just the fact that you happen to be in New Brunswick, I'm not sure what difference that makes. And number two, for people in the healthcare world to encourage someone who's not from New Brunswick to go to a New Brunswick clinic, walk-in clinic, emergency room, or otherwise, is making what's already a difficult situation in that province worse by one. <laughs> Why? 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 If there's things that can be accomplished over the phone or at a computer screen, I know it's not for everybody and it won't satisfy every ailment and condition, but when it is available, let's just satisfy it. Be, get it done. Done and over with. Yeah, it was, I was absolutely floored, you know? Like, I couldn't believe it. I, I even said to her, I was like, well, can we just, like, pretend I didn't say that and, and you just say that, you know, you put it down that I'm in St. John's and I mean, what's the difference? Yeah. You know, she said, I, in good conscience, I couldn't do that. You know, I'm not licensed in New Brunswick. I was like, fine, it's a phone call. Like, what's... You know, like the phone call, and she was like, you know, you can come in for in-person stuff now. And I was like, you know, that'd be great. But, you know, the phone call works best for me because of my job. You know, I'm in sales and I work from home and, and um, taking time off work means money out of my pocket, quite frankly. And uh, it also means that my clients aren't getting what they need. Like, and you know how we, I've listened to your program, you know, for a long time. And how many people call in telling you that they spend days waiting to get seen by a doctor in an emergency department, let alone you know, having to take, you know, a couple of hours to go to a doctor to get a prescription refilled, for Christ's sake. I mean, I'm sorry. I didn't no, that's to. okay. Uh, like, had you said, can you call in my prescription to the Lawtons on Main Street, Fredericton? Of course, the answer should be no. But that's not what you were asking at all. So these types of things, I'm always confused when, you know, people run into these types of roadblocks. It seems kind of unnecessary to me. Well, if I could lie, right? Yeah. And tell her, yeah, no, I'm in St. John's. I mean, like, you know, like, you're gonna, you know, um, I would have got I would have got the services I needed. You know that that's the problem, right? Like I, I understand if there's you know some kind of uh, you know administrative controls in place or or legal stuff, right? Um, like you said, but I'm not. I wasn't looking for anything like to pick up things here or to put any strain on any runs of healthcare system, right? And also going to a walk-in clinic or trying to get an emergency department visit here in Moncton does a couple of things. One, it means that I'm not going to be able to do my job because I'm only here for a short period of time. I didn't book this trip thinking I'd have to spend time in an emergency room just to just to ask them to fill a prescription for me in Newfoundland, which they wouldn't be able to do and begin to to do for me anyway. You know, they would have told me to call my doctor in Newfoundland and you know, and the doctor was like, Well what you know, next time you're in town, just give us a call and um, you know, then we can we can line something up. And my argument there is like Patty, I, I, I might have to go again. Like I, I don't know how long it's gonna take to get another appointment. And if I got to go to Moncton again or Halifax, you know, my, my territory is all of Atlantic Canada. If I got to go to a, a client meeting, that's going to mean that I'm going to make a, a significant sale towards my target for the year. I mean, then that means the government or at least this situation is putting me in a position where I have to decide whether I'm going to hit my targets at my employment and make money or wait in a doctor's office and sit home. You know, and, and I don't think that's fair. And nor does it make any sense. 
Yeah, that's absolutely foolishness. Tim, I wish you safe travels, and uh, it's too bad this is the case, but I'll put it to some friends that I have at the department and at the uh, the regional health authorities about what is the issue with this? Like, what exactly are doctors, clinicians, or anyone being told about a phone call that happens to come from outside the boundaries of the province from a resident of the province to satisfy something as fundamental as a phone call to have a prescription renewed? Anyway, I'll see what I can find out. I want to know why they even ask to begin with. Uh, yeah. I, I understand. Like, <laughs> That's you know, a fair where, point. Where do you live? Do you live in Newfoundland? Yes. Are you a resident? Yes. Do you have MCP? Yes. That's all you need to know. It's, it's like, I, you know, I don't want to be saucy, but like, quite frankly, where I am right at this moment is nobody's business. You know, unless, you know, unless I have to be at a, a court order or something, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, sure. But, you know, outside of that, it, it, I don't understand why it's even a, a part of their, their process, right? And, and you know, it, I, I will close with this. She was sympathetic to it, you know. She was like, I know, I understand, like, this is, you know, a pain, but, like, I can't do anything. And I, man, I mean, come on, right? Totally understand the concern, Tim, and I appreciate your time. You have safe travels. Stay in touch. Thanks, Patty. Have a great day. You too. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, let's just add that to the never-ending list of strange, unnecessary hurdles inside the system. So while we deal with the big picture issues to streamline healthcare, to fill up the shortages in healthcare professionals, and to adapt to the 10-year transitionary plan uh, that is the health accord, little things, right? Sometimes some little things can make things a little bit easier just by accommodating a bit of common sense. Let's go ahead and take a, a break for the 11.30 news. Today is a good day to wrap it up with your phone call here on the show if you're in the St. John's metro region and the topic, that's up to you. 273-5211 or elsewhere, toll free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. I'm sorry. Welcome back to the show. Well, one of the stories, you know, we haven't talked much about travel in the last little bit, but there's another travel-related story in the news today. Both Air Canada and WestJet are going to court to challenge some of the passenger compensation dollars that they've been forced to pay. What was happening, and a big contribution to some of these slags or the slowdowns inside of the airports, was, of course, yes, it about rehiring enough uh, Canadian border security agents. Absolutely. But with people having their flights cancelled or enormous delays, you know, the airlines were quoting safety concerns, when, of course, safety concerns are not directly associated with the fact that if you don't have staff, but you put the flight on the agenda, you sold people a ticket, you couldn't put the staff on the airplane to bring people where they were booked to go, then how can that be on the travelling public? So, Air Canada, WestJet, they are displeased, and we know revenue's tight, and they took an awful beating during the pandemic. No one denies any of that stuff. But when the passengers book in good faith, how can it be their responsibility to ensure staff are available? So they're going to go ahead and take it on and challenge it in court. But here's one of the quotes coming from the Public Interest Advocacy Centre. Basically, any time the airline has a staffing shortage of any kind, that could be an event that's out of their control, and therefore all those claims would fail. Uh, how can that possibly be the case? Because I bought the ticket. It's up to you to go ahead and uh, accommodate me with the appropriate staffing level. And, of course, the government does play a role in these things. We still have a massive backlog for people trying to get their passports. We still have problems inside some slowdowns. Now, it's improved dramatically. A friend of mine went through Pearson the other day. No hiccups when compared to we went through a couple of months ago, and it was an absolute nightmare. And that, of course, was a staffing issue inside and some government responsibility therein. But the airlines also have to play a role in backing up their own sales. 
It's not my fault if you don't have a crew available, but they're going to go ahead and see what they can do insofar as the court challenge because the passenger, the Bill of Rights for Passengers, of course, has been interpreted in different ways by the traveling public, by travel agencies, by the airlines, and by the government many, many times. It's about time we can figure it out and put it in black and white. Just look how fundamentally easy they have it in the European Union with accommodating passengers because it's not on me to make sure that you have a crew available for any of my booked passage. Anyway, that story is really quite strange. I see a lot of pushback again with the Premier's announcement yesterday to set up a recruiting office in India, basically for registered nurses, but I would imagine it's for any healthcare professional that they can attract. They've selected a city that, and a state in the city that has about 100 nursing schools. They say, and I've tried to take a look, and about exactly how similar their training is to nurses who are trained in this province. I can't find a lot of detail, and plus, I don't know if I understand it enough to do a fair comparison. But like everything else, there's still Ukrainian doctors here who are frustrated with the fact that they're ready and willing to go. Now, of course, patient safety and ensuring that the doctors and nurses or any healthcare professional has the type of training and education and experience where they can go in and be part of uh, helping deliver and helping to ease the burden on the system. But we can attract them all we like. But if there's a huge lag in time and cost and paperwork before they can go ahead and be part of the fold, then we're probably probably just taking one step forward and another step backwards. Maybe it's a bit of a stalemate. Now, I know the province is working with the College of Physicians and Surgeons to talk about streamlining that particular process, but, you know, maybe it's the cart in front of the horse to recruit more and more professionals who are going to still face the same hurdles of getting their license accredited here in this country. And yes, no one is arguing with the fact that you can't just take whoever that graduated from wherever and maybe not up to the Canadian standards. That's not the point at all. There will always be accreditation testing to ensure that they can indeed be part of the system but you know recruiting and then getting them to work are probably two different things uh, certainly some feedback coming in on a conversation we had with the Minister of Finance federally Christian Freeland a little earlier in the show so got some emails and I'm just assuming they're either family members of and or work for the federal government because my question to her was about not just looking at spending and support for folks who have been hurt the hardest by the pandemic. Of course, there are people who do need a leg up from the federal government. No one denies that. My question was about looking in, looking at in-house responsibilities, in-house spending. In particular, since February of 2020 to the summer, this summer, 2022, 86.7% of jobs created in this country were created in the public sector. So, you know, entrepreneurship has fell by some 7%. So there's more people working for the federal government than ever. There's over 312,000 federal employees, payroll costs in excess of $60 billion. That's not to say that people don't deserve to have a job. It's not that, that at all. It's hard to know sometimes how people hear what has been said. But if we're talking about controlling spending, then... We have to have governments be very mindful of how they spend money inside their own operations, inside their own government, inside the various departments. There's four departments in particular responsible for the vast majority of these new hires. And if it was to deal with pandemic supports, if it was to deal with some of the backlogs, that's up to the, that's up to the government to ensure things are done uh, seamlessly. But some control on these numbers just sounds like a good idea to me. That's not lambasting a public sector worker because think about it out loud. For the Canadians who suffered the most and getting supports in their hands, okay. But what we do know, and this has just happened to be a fact, this is not an opinion, is that 
federal government employees, provincial government employees, they didn't lose any pay. They didn't lose any time or hours. And so they weren't hurt the way that other Canadians were. So spending control is not just about spending on various initiatives out in the general public. It's also about how you spend inside the government. How could it be any different? Uh, let's see. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. Let's take our final break of the morning and the week. And when we come back, we're talking about the Ode to Newfoundland. Don't go away. Your VOCM mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 530 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number six, Vic, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and you're listening to the audience. Morning Thank to you for taking my call. No problem. Uh, one comment uh, this morning, uh, I read uh, several letters in uh, the weekend pertaining to the ode. Uh, as we know, the ode was removed from the convocation uh, ceremonies. I think most of the letters I, I read, they were very explicit, and there, they were certainly against, uh, and, uh, they were against not reading the ode. Of course, they were very disappointed that it was cancelled. I guess my question this morning is... is um, of course, Memorial University, as I recall, uh, was built in memory, of course, of our First World War veterans who, and, of course, veterans in general who, I guess, who uh, lost their lives over uh, uh, be, uh, uh, fighting for our freedom, actually. So, uh, to my point of view, of course, I'm old enough to remember Dowd quite well. In fact, I was a Newfoundlander for many years, a Newfoundlander before I became a Canadian. And I'm also a proud Newfoundland and a proud Canadian, and we, of course, uh, at a very young age, learned to to uh, to sing our uh, national anthem, which was the old, of course, of Newfoundland. Uh, so some people, uh, I think, suggested that we probably change some of the words in the old. Of course, uh, of course, I disagree with that. The other point I'd like to make, I think, we could maybe uh, we have a a lot of. Uh, among musicians that are quite capable to probably uh, compose. Uh, 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 I guess they're talking about, I think the university is talking about uh, 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 it's not inclusive. Maybe maybe they could still sing the ode and probably compose another ode that would uh, cover all, the, I guess, the ethics, uh, uh, different cultures that uh, that lives in Newfoundland. But uh, but I'm still against them not singing the ode. That's my... That's my uh, that's my uh, uh, firm belief. The other thing is, I'm just wondering what the Canadian Legion uh, stand on this. I haven't heard from them. I guess what I'm referring to is uh, our provincial command uh, here in Newfoundland. I just wonder what, what their views are. Now, that's one point. The other point, I like to, uh, another uh, topic very quickly I'd like to bring up is, uh, I know they had uh, the education of students were marching. I think they're, 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 they're uh, I think uh, uh, we question I think some tuition, I think uh, uh, I think the tuition and housing, it's a problem. Well, I think I know you. I think someone mentioned uh, a means test. Well, I think maybe we should have a means test for the. Uh, uh, local uh, Newfoundlanders, the uh, residents that are residents of Newfoundland, they could do that. Uh, put a means test on those uh, students.
students that can afford. The other thing, uh, uh, but a means test probably temporarily until we get, uh, then the problems get more financially stable. And maybe the problem should bring in uh, uh, free tuition, of course. Uh, yeah, I've, I've, I've always felt that that's simply just giving a freebie to uh, rich people who can afford to send their son or daughter to university. Uh, Vic, I'm a little bit uh, confused about your thoughts about the Legion and Munn's decision because, of course, the, Le- the Odin of Philan was written in uh, 1902 by Sir right. Cavendish Boyle, so it really had nothing to do with the military or the Legion or the university. So I'm, I'm curious as to your thoughts on the Legion chiming in here. Well, I thought when they built the university, they built it in memory of, of our veterans who lost their lives during... It's certainly the, part of it, yes. Part of it, so, and that's why I thought... I never had, I never saw I never saw any comments from the Legion pertaining to the change of the old. That's, that's, what I, that's why I was thinking that. And I think I read in one of the columns in the weekend that they mentioned that I think the, and uh, I guess uh, maybe the, the, our Memorial University uh, was built, I think, in memory of, of, of the veterans who lost their lives, I think, in the First World War. Yeah, I was just curious as to why you think the relationship uh, between the old. Uh, yes, and, and I read, I read all all the, the things through the to the editor in the weekend. It was, uh, I think, it was two or three in the paper yesterday. Uh, one one that really stood out was was the fellow there. Uh, he, in the weekend, I think he wrote. He living now in Ontario, and he's a former Newfoundlander from I think he said St. Joseph's. Uh, I think it could be St. Joseph's, St. Mary's Bay, and he was. I think it was a daily, and he 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 was very very. He wrote an extremely a wonderful comment about the, about the old and felt that you know it certainly should have not been removed from from the from from the convocation. Uh, so and it was another, and most of those that had, had written those um, letters opposing uh, were were former uh, students of Memorial University. Uh, so that that was really an eye opener for me, of course. But 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 my own personal view is, of course, it was. Uh, I was, if I remember correctly, on a personal, if I may add, I was 11 years old when we joined Canada. So uh, the ode to me is very very dear. It's our, it's our national anthem. And I don't think anybody should have the in fact I was surprised that Memorial University would have the power to change that old. You know, but they they didn't change it. I'm, I'm maybe it's my fault because it's late in the in the week, uh, and maybe I'm just not hearing what you're saying properly. But Mun's, Mun didn't change anything. Uh, well, no, no, they didn't change. I'm sorry. Yes, uh, uh, but but to omit it from the convocation, I thought it was this. I mean, this was a, a thing with ceremonial ceremonial thing we did every year, and I don't think it should be it should be. Uh, they should be removed. Uh, on a personal note, if I may add, I'm also a, 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 a graduate of Memorial University. And like I say, to me, the, to, to move that, uh, but I guess more importantly to me, it represents, where, to me, the veterans. And, and, and I'm a very, uh, I guess most families, another personal note, and most families have veterans in their family. I have two, I think a grand, grandfather went First World War. 
and his and a granduncle First World War, and of course, Dad's only brother was killed in the Second World War. So I guess it's, it's, it means a lot to me. And when I, in fact, it's memorial to me, it's a living memory of our veterans. What you know, what it can be for. I, I look at it as any veteran that's had a uniform on. Uh, that the Memorial University is is to me a, a living memory of that. That's you know, that's my, my personal point of view. Yeah, fair enough. I was just confused about the relationship between the old and the military. But look, just from where I sit, I just don't understand why this was the go-to idea. If we're talking about inclusion, how do you remove something in the air of inclusion? You know, whether it be a project for the Mons Med School to see if there was an additional stanza that could be added to reflect Labrador, or to include the Ode to Labrador, which is already its own standing written verse. So I, I don't no, really yes, get where yes, they're coming from, necessarily. Yes, yes, I guess that's my point, uh, too. Yes, they could, uh, if they wanted to, they could add another... Uh, they could add another, uh, another, uh, I guess, uh, uh, whatever they want to say, uh, join the communication pertaining to other cultures, etc. You know what I mean? Uh, and leave, but also uh, sing the old too. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Listen, I personally, and, and, I have and, a soft. And, and that way, you're not changing anything. You know. And like I say, now pertaining, getting back to the students that were uh, marching, I'm all, uh, of course, supportive of students. uh, the uh, international students, I think. Well, I think we have a. I think Memorial University is high, has a fairly high standard, in the, and I guess in, in in the world, as a, uh, we have a lot of uh, good programs in there, etc. So uh, I think they're complaining about their accommodations and uh, their tuition. Well, I think we should look at other universities and see what what to charge in uh, international students in, from, from other countries. You know. Other, in other provinces, so maybe maybe the international students here are they getting are they being charged too much? You know what I mean? And so they probably look at that. So I can't really make a comment on that. The international students, I know that well, you know we certainly welcome them to our province. Any 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 students is welcome, and it's good for our economy also. It doesn't seem to be a deterrent to international students at this moment in time. The tuition hike, which is now twenty thousand dollars a year for an international student, mm-hmm. the reason I say that is just based on the numbers. There's actually a thousand more international international students now than there were pre-pandemic and the registration this year of international students was also quite strong so they don't seem to be, have, have been scared away by the tuition hike but oh, no. it remains to be seen in the future what that means okay but uh, yes which is I'm aware of that I didn't read that just uh, the uh, the uh, enrollment of international students were actually was up yes yeah. and uh, so, uh, so we certainly welcome uh, any student uh, to memorial and uh, we have a good memorial we have a good university I think it has a good rating. I thought last rating I saw, I thought, I think it probably ranked seventh, I think, in Canada, you know, in the, in the rating of universities. I, I don't know if it was as high as that, but we've got certain features, whether it be the co-op programs, the med school, school of pharmacy, do, engineering. Yes. I think it was probably, uh, could have been tenth. I'm not quite sure now. But like I say, yes, yep. uh, but certainly I say I was just uh, personally uh, very upset about them not singing the old, and because of the, the military connection to my family, of course, uh, you know, my immediate personal family, so that, that's, you know, and, and I remember I was, uh, I was four years old when my dad's brother was killed, the only brother he had in the Second World War, so I remember that quite vividly, you know. Fair ball. Vic, you've had the last word of the week. We're off to uh, the 12 o'clock news, but thanks for your time. Have a nice weekend.
very much, Pat. Take bye care. Bye bye. All right, Vic was indeed the last caller. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program. And yes, we will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning, right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, Greg Smith, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. Talk Monday. Bye bye.